from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that cannot be contained within a genre. From femdom to southern gothic, her prose is as dark and compelling as her keen intellect. She's joining me today to talk about her recent novel, Azalea House, as well as her previous and upcoming work. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Claire Castleberry. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you for joining me. I'm a big fan of Southern Gothic, so I was really looking forward to reading Azalea House, and I definitely was not disappointed. Well, thank you so much for reading. I appreciate that. So there are both modern-day Southern Gothic stories as well as stories that go back to pre-Civil War days. Your story has elements of both time periods because it takes place in the 90s, but within the confines of an old plantation house that has ties to events in the antebellum era. Have you ever lived in, stayed in, or been in a house like Azalea House that had a dark past? And if so, what were the events that had taken place and what kind of energy did you pick up on? So this is a really loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> The actual house from the book is based off of a combination of two different places, my childhood home and an old family boarding house that's based out of my hometown, Port Vincent, Louisiana. It's actually called the Castleberry Boarding House, okay. and it's on the National Register of Historic Places. So I've never actually been inside the boarding house. I've just heard a lot of stories, and there was a book published, which had a lot of local history in it. And I picked it up. My grandparents gave it to me and it just made my imagination run wild. <laughs> I mean, the things that these people must have seen, it just must have been incredible. My family has been in that area for a very long time. We're actually Creole ancestry, Native American and French. So it goes way, way, way back in that area. 
And uh, my childhood home is probably haunted. (laughs) (laughs) I have had so many experiences there. I mean, seriously, we could do a whole show about that. (laughs) But um, in Azalea House, they're actually playing with a Ouija board. And there's a section where they see shoes, children's shoes underneath the door. So that actually really happened. And that was a shared experience that I had with a friend as we were playing on the board. It really creeped us out. <laughs> we screamed. And so let me, your childhood home and the boarding house are two different places, yes, correct? Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. you saw this? Yeah, it was at the childhood home. Okay, gotcha. Uh, that house, the property has been in my family for generations and generations. And it's actually very similar to the layout of Azalea House with it being up on a hill and... There is actually a burial ground way back in the woods behind the house, and oh, the wow. front is is very swampy. So, yeah, true Louisiana Creole setting. I kind of grew up in a, a place like that. But the experience with the shoes underneath the door, like I said, that really did happen. And one day I was sitting outside with my dad, and he said, kind of matter-of-factly, I don't even remember the context of the conversation, but he said, oh, yeah, there are two sisters buried out there in the corner of the property and they died from the Spanish flu. And I said, what? (laughs) You never told us that. It's just so nonchalant in the way that he said it. But yeah, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Tons of experiences, tons of weird stuff. Interesting. So I've heard the term a million times. What exactly is a boarding house? So... The area that I grew up in, it's right along the Amy River, which is kind of an offshoot of the Mississippi River. So there was a lot of river traffic up and down this particular river. And, you know, it was kind of like a little port town. There was not a whole lot going on in it. But I think that people would stop in that little town as almost like a stopover to New Orleans from Baton Rouge or other places. And it was basically kind of like a mini hotel. It was kind of like a large house with several rooms, almost like a bed and breakfast, if you will. Okay. So besides the history of the house, a major element of the story was an extremely dysfunctional family. Yeah. And uh, I once heard a mental health professional say that there's no such thing as a functional family. All (laughs) families are dysfunctional. Right. Which I don't know. Maybe that's true. But... uh, what was the main struggle that you wanted your protagonist, Marianne, to overcome in dealing with her dysfunctional family? I think I just wanted to convey that, you know, you can break away and you can start a new life regardless of your past. And it doesn't matter what you've been through. You can always break through it and come out ahead. Your trauma doesn't always have to follow you. You can remember it, but it doesn't have to control you. I think that you can learn from your mistakes and you don't necessarily have to see yourself as a victim per se. I don't particularly like the word victim. I like the word survivor a little bit better because survivor implies that you have more control and you're able to deal with your trauma. So that was basically the crux of the story. I wanted her to break away and start a new life, one that she could enjoy. Well, in the story, Marianne is 16 and in the throes of puberty. And even though she's almost crippled by social anxiety, she at some point discovers that she wields a certain amount of power from her sex appeal, from either somebody really creepy or somebody really inappropriate. But um, (laughs) what are some of the other events that take place that you feel lead Marianne to eventually take control of her life? I think it was definitely seeing other family members 
especially Marcus, her brother in particular, move on with their lives. Marcus, in the book, he conveys a certain sense of wisdom. And even though he's the younger brother, I think that she admires him in a way because he does actually pick up all of his stuff and leave in the middle of the book. And I think that Marianne went from a victim mentality and shifted and started taking control of her life, which is what I've fortunately seen a lot of other survivors do. And she does go from being isolated to kind of expanding her worldview and seeing herself as more adult-like. So it is kind of a coming-of-age story in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. And with regard to Marcus leaving, I've heard people in the mental health world, I suppose, talk about foo family of origin mm -hmm. and actually in some cases it being necessary to just basically disown your family of origin if there's a level of dysfunction that just can't be remedied have you known anybody that actually had to do that so this is kind of interesting but marcus is kind of loosely based off of my brother mm -hmm. and he did go through an experience kind of like this he did grow up with cerebral palsy he was gay. My parents were very accepting of it, but his school wow. was definitely not. And that was very difficult for him. So it was important for me to convey him as a strong character who was willing to break out of any situation, no matter what, even if it meant leaving his sister and starting a new life. But growing up in South Louisiana, it was not always easy I had quite a few friends, actually. And, you know, my brother was not the first person who I had seen kind of deal with this. I had a lot of friends who were gay and just not accepted, and they had to break away. And sometimes, in a lot of cases, the best option was to quit school and move out of the state and move to another place that was more accepting. You know, and I applaud them for that. It takes a lot of bravery to break away from your, your food, your family of origin, and be yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I imagine in that time period, in the middle of the Bible Belt, it was... Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> well, the reason in the previous question that I used the word feel is because it seems like a lot of writers I've talked to have to guess at their uh, characters' motivations, just like the readers, because it's almost as if they don't have control over them. Did you feel that way with any of the characters in this book? To a degree, yes. I can definitely relate to that. And... It sounds kind of bizarre, but I almost let myself become possessed by characters so that they can speak through me, and I kind of channel them. I know it sounds very woo, but I guess I'm kind of a woo person. I let them get their stories out. It's almost kind of like meeting someone at a cafe and taking notes and interviewing them. I write a whole backstory about them, even if I don't include it in the original story. I spend a lot of time you know, thinking about their childhood and where they came from. And like I said, a lot of the time it doesn't end up in the story, but I just find that it's so, so helpful. And it really does help flesh out characters. And so when you say you kind of let the characters possess you, are you talking about almost kind of like a meditative state? Like, yeah. you know, are you accessing your unconscious mind? You know, which to me personally, I believe is like the source of all creativity. Yeah, I definitely relate to that. I'm very big into spirituality and meditation, and I kind of play around a little bit with the occult as well. So 
And it's like I said, I've just kind of let myself become possessed. So far, knock on wood, <laughs> nothing crazy has happened other than I write crazy stories. <laughs> um, yeah. You don't need an old priest and a young priest? Have them sit no. over? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness. But yeah, I definitely um, go into a trance state and then I'm out of it and take notes and journal quite a bit. Well, the relationship between Vivienne, and I think I'm pronouncing that right, right? Yeah. Vivienne, yeah. Mm -hmm. Vivienne and her mother, Julia, is an all-too-familiar meme. The overbearing mother trying to live vicariously through her daughter. I mean, they make reality TV shows about it. And yeah. it's usually through competition like cheerleading, or in this case, modeling. And not only does Julia try to elevate herself through her daughter, but she also marries a young stud. So I'm curious, since we've been talking about kind of the psychological driving force of different people with different dysfunctions, if you had to give Julia a backstory that involved her childhood, because you do give her a backstory, but one specifically that involves her childhood, what would that look like? Julia is a fascinating character to me, and I think that I could really just go on and on and on with her backstory. She was kind of the forgotten one who lived in her sister Janelle's shadow. She's kind of described as being a little bit homely, a little bit plain. Julia was always trying to impress her parents. But Janelle, Marion's mother, was the star of the family, you know. So Julia felt overshadowed. And <laughs> then she kind of became like a bully of sorts, you know, in order to stand out any way that you can do it, you know. And like I said, I do feel bad for her in a lot of ways. But she had the haughty husband and the exciting life. And then her rock store sister goes out and bangs her husband and gets pregnant. I mean, like, <laughs> who, who wouldn't be pissed off? Yeah. You know, she's just been dealt a crappy hand in life, you know. Mm -hmm. So she's always just kind of been shrewd and vengeful and, you know, kind of out to get her comeuppance. Yeah, she's a very interesting character. Maybe it's just kind of strange to say, but I do kind of feel for her in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't overshadowed by a sister or anything like that, but yeah, definitely feel some, uh, some sympathy for her. So the character of Vivian is a very skillful portrayal of the mean girl archetype. To me, that archetype is so alluring because they're sexy, but in a dangerous, violent way, because it's like they're performing a balancing act of building themselves up while engaging in acts of self-destruction. So, what is the allure for you in writing those characters? Oh, man, I'm a huge fan of Carl Jung. And if you're familiar with his stuff, you know about the shadow side. Oh, yes. Where do you think I get the Dark Mind podcast? Yeah, I was kind yes. of wondering about that myself. Mm -hmm. So I think we all kind of have a little bit of Vivian in us, right? Vivian kind of represents Marianne's shadow side. She's vain, you know, she's a jealous bitch. Can't connect to her emotions like Marianne can. You know, Vivian feels controlled, especially towards the end of the book. You know, her mom wants her to be this perfect model. And Marianne kind of had control over her personality development. She went from shy and, you know, having selective mutism to finding her voice. And her parents were always kind of okay with her being quiet. It was really kind of the exterior members of the family who were not. So Vivian, I kind of felt like she was force-fed this personality. You know, do this, stand up straight, be this way, model. Shadow sides are always fascinating to me. 
So it was important for me to have those elements in Azalea House. And it's like Jung says, everyone carries a shadow and the less it is embodied in the conscious life, the blacker and denser it is in reality. And I think that that was definitely Vivian. It was very important for me to put that in there. And I tend to do that with all of my fiction as well. Put some kind of shadow side in the characters. Mm -hmm. So would you say that Marianne was struggling with her shadow self, but unlike Vivian was able to integrate it, which is what Jung said, you know, the secret is not to repress it. Otherwise, it'll just come storming up in all sorts of unhealthy ways, not to be overcome by it, but to integrate it. Do you think that's what Marianne was ultimately able to do? I think so. She was able to move past feeling crazy for, you know, experiencing all this paranormal stuff. Eventually, she kind of accepted it and listened to those voices. And she also accepted her bisexuality. You know, a lot of people in high school don't do that. They just kind of run away and repress it and repress it and repress it. And then it doesn't come out until their 30s or something like that. Especially in the 90s, I think that that was the case. People were repressing stuff like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so I think she did a pretty good job. Yeah, I remember I was raised like really fundamentalist Christian. And I remember I was watching some sort of religious something or other. It was kind of like in a news format. And I remember them saying, they're calling it the gay 90s. <laughs> like, it's this fucking scary, spooky thing. It's like, yeah, I uh -huh. remember exactly what it was like back then. Yeah, I definitely remember that too. I can't remember who it was. It was some actress or musician who came out as bisexual and everyone was like, oh, mm. you know, what is that? It's so yeah. crazy and wild. And yeah, it was a big deal. I remember, wasn't it Anthony Kiedis from the Red Hot Chili Peppers? Didn't he yeah. come out as being bisexual? Yeah, I was obsessed yeah. with him in high school. And I just thought it was so cool. I was like, man, he just said he was bisexual. Yeah. Yeah, that guy, especially with his performance, was uh, very sexual. What was it? Uh, yeah, blood sugar sex magic. Blood sugar sex magic. Suck my kiss. Suck my kiss. Uh, my lovely man. Mm -hmm. uh, naked in the rain. <laughs> See, there you go. The it just go, it goes on and on. Yeah. Good stuff in the nineties. Mm -hmm. <laughs> lots of people had sexual awakenings in the nineties. <laughs> yeah, sixties don't have anything on the nineties. goddammit. it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was curious to know, based on Marianne and her brother Marcus playing with the Ouija board, you have played with a Ouija board, correct? Yes. Can you tell us about the experience or experiences? Oh, goodness. Um, I've, <laughs> Only I've if you had, want to. <laughs> well, there are just so many, and I don't know if it was a product of the place I grew up in because there was just so much activity around there. But like I said, the experience where they see the shoes underneath the door, that really happened. I've experienced things moving around. I've heard people talking and we got really freaked out by that thing and actually threw it in the trash. And I shit you not, it reappeared in my closet, not making this up. I don't know if it was like my parents trying to prank me or something. I kind of doubt it, but that's always been very perplexing. I was very close with my neighbors growing up and I could cut through the woods and get to their house. 
And it was all kind of part of this large, I guess, like farm that went back about seven generations in my family. And the neighbor's grandmother was still alive. And she said something kind of offhand, like, oh, yeah, this whole property is kind of like on the vortex to hell or something like that. And we were just like, what the hell? I don't know if she was kind of like messing with us or she was, you know, going senile or whatever, but it always just kind of stuck in my brain um, and sat with me for the rest of my life. Lots, of, <laughs> lots and lots of weird experiences. And now were these experiences as you were playing with the board or you would play with the board, something would happen. And then this stuff would just kind of happen throughout the day, days afterwards. Yeah, it would. I do kind of feel like the board almost facilitated the experiences and kind of opened a portal, if you will. I'm not really sure how all this stuff works, but I do kind of believe that there is something to it. And if you're kind of like a naive child and you don't know what you're doing and don't know how to protect your energy, <laughs> you can definitely let things come and go as they please. And they do come and go as they please, I think. And I don't know if that's all a product of being a child with an overactive imagination or, you know, if they were 100% physical experiences, but they definitely freaked me out. And I definitely think that's one of the reasons I write horror. So I believe, if I'm not mistaken, The Exorcist was based on, I don't know if it was loosely based or strictly based on a real story, right? The, uh... I believe so. I can't remember. I do remember reading that book when I was in college, and I was visiting my grandparents in Arkansas, and it was in the woods, and I had stayed up until about 3 a.m. Mm. reading the book, which you should never do unless you <laughs> want to be scared out of your mind. Um yeah, it definitely, The Exorcist freaked me out, for sure. The reason I bring it up is because she was playing with a Ouija board. And, That's right, uh, she was. Um, what was his name? Captain Howdy or something like that? Yeah, was the person yeah. she was talking to? Yeah, so that's why I brought that up. I was, <laughs> I was wondering if the real story that it was based on, if that young woman was playing with a Ouija board as well, like... I think she must have. I mean, if you dig around the internet a little bit, you'll see all kinds of Ouija board lore about how you're not supposed to play it by yourself and, you know, always say goodbye. It's really interesting. Actually, last night for Halloween, we were watching the movie Witchboard, which is an 80s movie kind of about Ouija boards and possession. I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but it's definitely a gem. Yeah. Is it on shot? Yeah. Actually, I think it is. Oh, awesome. All right. We'll check yeah, that out. It, it's a true 80s classic. Very nice. cheesy, cheesy, <laughs> but good. Uh, that's the, the decade I was born in. I, I was born cheesy. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand that you narrated the audiobook for Azalea House. Do you have any kind of background in voiceover or is it something you taught yourself? So, yes. A little fun fact, I actually met a director of a public access television show based out of Santa Cruz, California, when I lived in the Bay Area years ago. And I started acting in a few of his horror sci-fi shows that he used to do. So that was really just a way to gain a new perspective on writing. And then he found out I was a writer and he said, well, you can write some shows and I'll pay you like $50 a show. I was like, hot damn. Oh my God. (laughs) Money. I'm rich. (laughs) But here's kind of a little known fact. Like Marianne, I had selective mutism. 
So I was always looking for ways to improve myself and kind of break out of that shell. And I finally did, you know, I was like 12 or 13 when I finally did. But improv and acting was one of the things that really helped me push through that a little bit more. So I was always told I had like an interesting voice, that it had texture and it was a little bit deep. And then later on, I did phone sex, just kind of to make ends meet and things like that. And then I started narrating some of my own stories and selling them and things like that. And then I met Michael and Vanessa of Winding Road Stories, the publisher for Azalea House, and Michael suggested that I narrate it. And he said, well, if you need any equipment or anything like that, let me know. I said, everything. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, he just, you know, let me do it. And we went with it. And I'm very happy with the way that it turned out. And I'm very happy that I had such a flexible publisher that was willing to let me do things like that. It was great. And so you said you already had the equipment that you needed? Yeah, yeah, I did. So I have kind of a semi-pro setup. It's in my basement studio, but the cat's down there right now and raising hell. So <laughs> Can't have that. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's a terror. So it's really just like a basic mic setup, and I have kind of a um, soundproofed room. Mm. I use Audacity, and I taught myself how to do all that. So awesome. it was fun. Nice. And you've done audiobooks for other books as well. That you yeah, have, right? mostly yeah. mostly like erotica and things like that. Okay. So the recording part I find is easy, but the difficult part of it is the editing part because yeah. I'm still kind of learning little tricks and things of the trade, but it's been fun. I'm kind of a little bit of a software techie geek cool. in a lot of ways. So yeah, yeah it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm tempted to get into the details with you about that, but... <laughs> <laughs> It'll probably take yeah. I mean, we, like, we can always do like the after after. Yeah, hour like uh, what what kind of uh, audio repair software? What's going on? Yeah, <laughs> I nerd the fuck out when it comes to audio. Oh yeah, yeah, me too. I'll refrain. I'll restrain myself. <laughs> so, how long does it take to record an audio book? Like, not with the editing, because you said you're kind of you know right. learning that, but just yeah. to record it. So, recording, I find it comes pretty naturally. A chapter usually in Azalea House was about 3,500 words per chapter. And it took me roughly 30 minutes for each chapter. So I'd spend about an hour, hour and a half each day recording. And then I just kind of recorded everything day by day by day. And then took a little bit of a break and then started editing as a separate process. But I found it to be a lot of fun. It was interesting because I could get into character a different way, Mm -hmm. you know, and kind of, like I said, let myself become possessed again um, by these characters and try to figure out how they would talk and how they would enunciate certain words and, you know, different pauses. And it was a lot of fun. It brought back some acting days for me. So it was great. Yeah. You know, I saw like a, a little mini doc on that one guy. I forget what his name is, but he's the main guy that does all the voiceover for movie trailers in the city. You know, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I remember watching it and being like, man, if you're just born with a cool voice, you can make so much money. 
because, you know, in my head, that's all he does is he just talks with his cool voice. But then I started doing narrative fiction. You know, I don't do it anymore. It's what I started off doing. And holy shit, is that hard? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like you sound like you're putting something really raw and emotional into the microphone. And then you listen to it play back. You're like, that's God awful. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. How does this guy do it? And I was talking to a guy that was uh, an audio engineer And I think he was just talking about professional voiceover guys in general, just how like there's very little processing applied to their voices because they're so good at just, I guess, through vocal manipulation, reducing the dynamic range of their voice. And, you know, they never have any of the clicky mouth noises because they take special measures to make sure their mouth's not watering, but that their mouth's not dry and, you know, just... Yeah, it gets complicated. It mm. really does. This was a little bit challenging because I was like, oh, I'm going to do a big project. I'm going to get a brand new mic. You know, it's going to be so cool. And I got the mic and plugged it in and played it back. I was like, man, that's a <laughs> lot of clicking noises. Like, what it picks up on everything, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's crazy. But, you know, there are all these like EQs and things that you can apply to make your voice richer or more textured. Like I said, I'm still learning. Audacity is just amazing. You know, the things that you can do with it. um, And YouTube is amazing, too, because that's how I'm I'm learning how to do a lot of this stuff. Like, get rid of the clicking noises. Once I found that YouTube video about getting rid of clicking noises, I was so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, especially when um, you start compressing, it makes the clicking that much worse. It's like, now now it sounds like a popping fire ember, you know, Mm -hmm. in a fireplace. Like, goddamn. Yep. Mm-hmm. So true. Well, you've mentioned a little bit about them. Can you tell me about your publisher, Winding Road Stories? Yeah. So they're really great. And this was kind of an interesting backstory. Michael Dolan, the founder, he has been involved in a lot of magazines. You've probably heard of like Details, Men's Health, Condé Nast, like all kinds of stuff. Um, So at the beginning of the pandemic, I offered up my stories for free because, you know, not a lot of people actually make money off of (laughs) selling books anyway. So he sent me a DM on Twitter and he asked me for a copy of the story Second Skin. And he read it and he enjoyed it. And then from there, he started up Winding Road Publishing. And then he sent me a DM and asked if I had anything that, you know, he could publish. And I had just finished Azalea House, and it was with the second beta reader. (laughs) So I pitched it to him, and he said, great, you know, send it to me whenever you're ready. And he was just great to work with. He actually pushed me to make it a little bit more adult. All those things that you read about Marianne spying through the peephole and seeing Julia place her high-heeled foot on Troy's chest and, you know, all the sexual stuff about him having an erection and the scene where she sleeps with the cheerleader. Mm. All of that Michael pushed me to do. Mm. And it made it more adult. And it made it more taboo and just, I thought, interesting. And I really enjoy working with people like that who don't want to censor. You know, I work with two other publishers, um, Zombiegasm, that does all of my femdom stuff and Jay Willoughby. And they're very supportive publishers. And they're always saying, you know, make it a little bit more spicy and, you know, do this and go a little bit further with it, add a little bit more. And I've always really appreciated that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, they were wonderful to work with. 
Speaking of second skin, I was looking through your bibliography, and that's one of the ones that looked really interesting that I might want to read next. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So second skin is kind of a spin on the modeling experience that I had when I lived in California. I was doing that part time. (laughs) I wasn't really into it all that much. I did it for income while I was writing. So it's kind of a product of that. But before I moved to Los Angeles, my mentor, the guy who did the public access television show in Santa Cruz, he warned me and said one of his friends, girlfriends, was drowned in a bathtub. She was kind of a model socialite. And they suspected it was because she didn't take a job. And that, it just really struck me. I was like, oh my God, you know, I really just don't want to do this modeling stuff. A lot of it was great. And I had a lot of great experiences with a lot of great creative photographers and made some money, which was wonderful because I wasn't making a lot of money doing writing. So I was grateful for it. But I had kind of a weird experience in Los Angeles. I felt more comfortable kind of walking around with some sort of emotional costume that wasn't really me. It was sort of like being a Halloween character year round. Mm -hmm. And Second Skin is kind of a story about that. So it sounds like modeling is kind of like that movie Neon Demon. Oh my God. (laughs) Yes. I'm obsessed with that movie. It came out. I was like, Oh yeah. It was so similar to my experience in Los Angeles. Wow. That's cool. And simultaneously terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I am grateful for the experience and LA is not the cheapest place to live. And I lived in Venice, the Mar Vista neighborhood. So that modeling money really got me by, but I swear. I mean, it was almost like being on another planet for me. It was weird. Like, uh, do you ever read any Brad Easton Ellis? So, yeah, I'm obsessed with Brad Easton Ellis. I've read everything by him. Yeah. <laughs> I have a physical copy of Less Than Zero, but I yeah. had American Psycho on ebook, and I wanted to read it again, but I'm tired of looking at screens all day. So I ordered a hard copy. So I'm waiting Good. to reread American Psycho because, you know. <sighs> If you've seen the movie, the movie is nothing compared to the intense violence in the book. Yes. Uh, So my partner, he had never actually seen the movie. And I was like, you're going to be obsessed with this book. I was so happy to reach someone who had actually never seen the movie. And he was like sending me texts. He was like, this is so crazy. You know, like the urinal cake scene. He was just obsessed with that. So yeah, it was a delight to (laughs) corrupt someone else with that one. Spread the darkness. Yes. (laughs) Listeners at home, she steepled her fingers. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the next book I saw in your bibliography that looked really interesting to me was Bound by Blood. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So that actually started out as a vampire love story, believe it or not. Um, I was obsessed with Interview with the Vampire, who wasn't in the 90s. And then I kind of got on this kick researching Carla Hamolka, who was like an absolutely terrible person, serial killer in the 90s, who paired up with her partner and murdered some people. And Bound by Blood is essentially a love story between two psychopaths. 
it's not my favorite thing that I've ever written, but it was the first thing I had really ever written and gotten serious about. (laughs) And it, it did get picked up by an agent. Um, and they kind of went under and then it got picked up by a publishing company and they went under. Mm. So I got fed up with everything and said, I'm just going to publish it myself. So I did. So that's bound by blood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Listening to Brett Easton Ellis's podcast, talking about getting movies made. It's like they get financed and then it falls under and gets financed, falls through. It does. Yeah. When you were talking about that, that's what reminded me of. Is that something common along with literature where, um, yeah. is it? Yeah. I think so. You know, Bound by Blood got optioned too. Mm-hmm. I think that that happens a lot more than people are willing to admit and stuff falls out all the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, you just, you really have to be flexible as an author and kind of go with the flow and not have super high expectations. And then I think you'll be really happy. People lately have been DMing me and saying, what is your advice? (laughs) We say, (laughs) do this. If you love to do this, great. You know, if you're doing this for money, you're going to be really sad. (laughs) (laughs) A sad panda. (laughs) Sad panda. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so if you could be a character in any one of your books, who would you be? I think I would be Ghost the Cat, just like a fly on the wall watching all this shit unfold. Oh, um, and not, else? Yeah, and not super involved in anything. But I don't know. I mean, sometimes I kind of wonder, Troy has a pretty <laughs> good life. <laughs> all he really does is just like drink and sit around, pseudo wealthy wife. I don't know. I say that, but I think I would go crazy. But yeah. Um, I really do think that I relate to Marianne quite a bit. No one really believes me that I had selective mutism and was kind of shy growing up. But yeah, it's actually true. It is actually true. So I I kind of relate to a lot of her struggles. And I'm always looking to better myself. Well, so I know basically what happens to Marianne with regard to her selective mutism. But what is it exactly like? What is the selective mode? Like what triggers whether or not you're able to talk? Is it like extreme anxiety or? So it's really different, I think, for everyone. And I haven't really been able to find a whole lot of research into it. For me, you know, I started out as kind of a very happy-go-lucky kind of vivacious child And then I experienced trauma from an adult. And that was really what set it off for me. I only spoke to people I trusted, like my mom, my friends at school, everyone else I kind of shut down around. So it was almost like selective shyness. But I wasn't 100% shy. I was definitely introverted growing up. But it's very mysterious. And eventually, you know, I kind of broke through it. And luckily, I don't know what it is about me, but I kind of attract like super outgoing people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So thankfully, and I'm very grateful, they kind of helped me break out of that, that mutism. So it didn't last for very long. And I think it's more common in girls, as far as I understand. But yeah, it's very mysterious. And I think it varies from person to person. 
So in your case, when you were around somebody that you didn't trust, you weren't necessarily feeling anxiety. It was more like a tactical need to just yeah. not, not give too much away. Right. Okay. Yep. And I catch myself sometimes. I still do it. I'm no, like, oh, bad, bad, clear. Slap myself on the wrist. Yeah, it's definitely a protective mechanism. But I think in a lot of people, it is shyness, you know. I have talked to another writer friend, and she actually works with children who have selective mutism. And it really does vary. You know, some of it is they don't trust their peers because they've been bullied by their peers. Sometimes they don't trust, you know, older women because they grew up in a Catholic nun environment and were Mm. terrified of them. So it really, you know, it's just like people, you know, people are different. So manifestations of that are definitely different as well. Well, I've seen that previously your writing was in the genre of femdom erotica and horror. Yep. So what made you decide to kind of branch out into the genre of Southern Gothic? So it's all really the same to me. I write with themes of otherness and love and fear are really our basic primal emotions. You know, of course, I cut my teeth on writers like Lucy Taylor, Ray Garten, Poppy C. Bright. And sex was always like a little bit creepy to me when I was growing up. I've always been kind of a private person, not necessarily shy, but a little bit more contained, introverted. And I've always expressed myself sexually through writing, I guess. And when I start to think about genre or fitting into a certain group, I start to get a little bit skittish. I don't mind other people categorizing my work, but I get kind of nervous about getting lumped into any community or hashtag. And I find myself starting to like people please to conform. And that's dangerous for my writing, I think. And I have to watch myself. And I just, I like to have different perspectives. I read very widely, or at least I try to. But it's all really, you know, femdom, erotica, Southern Gothic, it all brings in those elements of otherness for me. So they're all really similar as far as I'm concerned. I just really write. Yeah. (laughs) And I like to write, and I try not to worry too, too much about genre when I'm sitting down to write, but all of those elements usually come out for me, except in Second Skin, that's not really Southern Gothic. It is kind of Gothic in its foundation, but there's a lot of sex and fear. And like I said, I think those are just two basic primal emotions that really fascinate me. Just kind of let it organically happen. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Well, you mentioned, I heard you say Poppy Z. Bright. Mm -hmm. And who were your uh, other influences? Lucy Taylor, Ray Garten as well. I really like a lot of elements from V.C. Andrews novels. Joe Lansdale is another favorite of mine. Toni Morris, Cormac McCarthy. uh, Let's see, who else? (laughs) Uh, Man, he has written some crazy banana stuff. Child Mm -hmm. of God. Wow. Yeah. I mean, my goodness. Donna Tart, yeah, any kind of nonfiction as well. Norman Partridge, he's he's a good close friend as well, and I, I read his stuff just because it sounds like he's in the room speaking to me. So really, anything I can get my hands on. 
Yeah, I'm a big fan of Cormac McCarthy. I mean, if there ever was a true writer, did you see him interviewed by Oprah? Yeah. And how he was just like, just like, do you care if anybody reads your stuff? Like, I mean, it's nice. I'd, it's not that big of a deal, I guess. I mean, this dude right. just lives to write. He went through so many wives because he just wouldn't focus on the marriage. He just wanted to do nothing but read and write. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I read he used to stay in these, they weren't hostels, but like these, for lack of a better word, shitty motels. And yeah. he would carry a light bulb mm-hmm. with him. <laughs> so he could, yeah. I guess the places he was staying, I don't know what the deal was. He needed a light bulb for some reason to read. He, yeah, he embodies kind of the stereotypical writer type. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, I mean, he can pretty much do no wrong in my eyes. I love mm-hmm. his work. Yeah. And it made sense after I heard him or I read an interview he did where he said that he doesn't really particularly care for the company of other writers. He likes to spend time with scientists. The reason I say it made sense to me when I read him say that was because most of his books, they start off in rural areas But then at some point, some weird technical thing happens, you know, like uh, what was it Um, like the counselor, the uh, assassin has that Garrett that's automatic. It's got the motor that automatically draws up and strangles you until it takes your head off. It's like like I now understand where these weird tech things come from because he hangs out with scientists and he's talking to him. He's like, you know what? My next book, this weird shit's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, My partner is actually an anesthesiologist and in a lot of my stories drugs make an appearance like somebody's drugging this person you know i'm like what should i use he's like ah i got you covered oh (laughs) you know how expensive that kind of technical advice is normally i know i'm I'm so freaking lucky yeah i'm so freaking lucky Yeah, he's he's a great resource, you know, and he's surrounded by other scientists, so I can kind of pick mm-hmm. their brains, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty fantastic. But yeah, I mean, an anesthesiologist, basically what they do is put you on the verge of death and keep you there. I know. They keep you from going over the edge. Right. It's sexy. <laughs> yeah. So like, so if you were writing a villain that's, you know, like maybe sedating people to chemically restrain them, like, you know, Dexter. My background, I know that's BS, shooting somebody in the neck with something. It doesn't fucking work, but goddamn if it's not dramatic, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah, they definitely did that for the dramatic appeal. Um, I don't know. He loves that show, but he hates the injection scenes. (laughs) I know. It's so cool, but at the same time, if you have any kind of medical background, you're like, that is total BS. Mm-hmm. Nothing and nothing given, even if you were to like stab him in the ass, nothing acts that quickly. It's not right. <laughs> it'll, it'll at least take five minutes. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. anyway, so what is your writing medium? Are you one of those people that uses the mechanical typewriter? I used to when I was really? a kid. Yeah. When I was a kid, I had an old school typewriter and my parents set it up in my closet for me and I used to go back there and write little stories about, you know, Greek gods and goddesses and myths and things like that. But I actually still use, you know, the old school black and white composition notebooks. Really? Um, yeah. And I handwrite a lot of stuff and a lot of time it's just really snippets of conversation and stream of consciousness, things that come from characters. 
And then I kind of bring it all together and put it into to Google Docs because that's the easiest way to share it with my beta readers and to get, you know, some insight and some notes. I, <laughs> funny story, I wrote Bound by Blood from scratch three times. Different things happened. Like one time my computer blew up and another time the jump drive got corrupted. And, you know, so I just kind of said I need some kind of cloud sharing medium to write on. And so I just kind of started to work with Google Docs. And then I kind of put everything together in a Word document. And that's when I start polishing it up. But, yeah, I'm a little bit old school when it comes to that. What about your atmosphere? Do you have like a designated place, kind of a Zen garden? (laughs) Yeah, I have like several places. Here's one behind me. I have uh, a little bit of a library here. I see The Exorcist. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Great book. So creepy. I reread it on the regular. Yeah. (laughs) It's such an inspiration. (laughs) I write in here quite a bit. I have like a little sunroom where I hang out with the cats and my plants. Um, But I kind of like to move around a little bit. I mean, since the pandemic, I haven't really had an opportunity to write at a lot of coffee shops, which I used to love to do. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Was it just like white noise? I think so. In the 90s, when I was growing up, that was a very inspirational and creative atmosphere to me to go into the city, get away from my house and the country and go out to the city and meet with other creative people and just become energized by the atmosphere there. But yeah, I've kind of adjusted, I think, fairly well. And as long as I'm able to have a cup of coffee and move around a little bit, I'm I'm pretty Mm. happy. Well, is there anything you do besides reading that you feel makes you a better writer? Yeah. So I think I mentioned I'm a little bit kind of ritualistic and into the occult. And I paint as well. I think it helps me bring things to life in my head a little bit. And one day I'd actually like to illustrate Second Skin and make it into kind of a chat book. Mm. I think that'd be a lot of fun. But I also love to dive into research. I used to be a cataloger, a librarian, actually. Mm. And I'm, I just love browsing different topics. And there's something about being in the library and, you know, just going in there and browsing books on different random topics and thinking about where to go with them and just having factual information that you can use in your stories that makes it come to life. I absolutely love that part of it. I love the research aspect. Yeah, I don't particularly care. Like Dan Brown, I liked the lost symbol, I think. But, you know, as far as like angels and demons and the Da Vinci Code, it's just not my bag. But that guy does research that is just insane. I know. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I remember I remember him being interviewed and they asked him what he read. He's like, I don't really have time to read fiction. I'm so busy reading nonfiction as research. Yeah. I think that reading a lot of fiction though, it helps enrich your experience, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it just kind of helps you see what other people are doing. Um, yeah. I love, 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 love reading nonfiction. I would say that that's my main bag. But I I do think it's important to keep up with what other writers are doing. And I do try to make time with that. Usually I read nonfiction in the morning and fiction at night. So try to balance that out a little bit. Well, what is your least favorite part of the writing process from inception to publication? Oh, gosh, all of that is actually really cool. 
I'm learning to like editing a little bit more. It's, you know, when they sent me back the edits for Azalea House, I was like, I don't remember writing this. Who, <laughs> who the hell wrote this? Like, and it, my editor was like, are you okay? Like, you're really quiet. And I was like, yeah, 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 fine. Everything's great. But I'm thinking to myself, like, what the hell is this? <laughs> I don't remember any of this. So it's kind of interesting how you can write it and put it down and then just have it out of your head. So I've kind of learned to become a little bit more fascinated with that aspect of it. I hate promoting myself. It feels cheesy. I don't know how to get over that. I would love to learn how to get over that. I love kind of chit-chatting and making friends with other creatives and writers. And that part's wonderful. But when it comes to pushing my work, uh, I feel kind of like a drug dealer, like I'm doing something shady or yeah. illegal. or I don't know what it is about it, but everybody kind of says the same thing. When it comes to Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people hate, they really don't like promoting their stuff. Maybe people do. I don't know. Because, <laughs> I mean, I can relate to what you're saying. I don't like putting my face on anything, you know? Yeah. I usually just use my logo and then pictures of the people I'm interviewing. I just feel oh, weird. Man. <laughs> yeah, if I could get away with doing that, that would be great. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think my publisher would be too happy with that. Yeah. Well, what do you find to be the most beneficial aspect of writing? I think it's wonderful to just get up in the morning and free write, you know, just get my emotions out on paper. And I tend to let my fear go and just write whatever comes to mind, you know. I don't worry about it being too this or that or too crazy. I can always edit that later. Mm -hmm. And it does help. My brother has really specific instructions to set fire to all of that shit if I croak. But <laughs> <laughs> so no one else will see it. So Clear my browser uh, history. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's got a little list, you know, a to-do list if I kick the bucket mm -hmm. to get rid of all that stuff. So yeah, it's really beneficial and therapeutic to me to get all that stuff out on paper first thing in the morning. Yeah, I work with a guy. He's a total nut. He uh, has one of those medical alert necklaces. And on one side, it says no Foley catheters. And on the other side, it says, please clear my browser history. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh-huh. Yeah, us writers, yeah, we have a very damning search history, I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, like what if you're writing a, a novel about a kid that builds a bomb in his basement or something like that? Like, you know, have... what happens? So what happens to I you? Don't know. Apparently, you're on a list until the book comes out, and then they're like, oh, "Okay, they're fine." <laughs> I, I'm definitely on the list. I can All tell right? you that much. Yeah, yep, I think so. Well, I'm gonna have to kind of reword this because my question was gonna be which of the genres of horror, Southern Gothic, and femdom is your favorite to write, and what is your favorite to read? But I know you don't like to be kind of pigeonholed into genres. So is, yeah. there, a, is there a way that we can maybe turn that into particular elements? Like I'm, well, femdom is kind of more sexual, I assume? Yeah. So for me, I don't like to put myself in those boxes. I'm totally okay with other people doing that. You know, I think that's totally fine. And as a cataloger, <laughs> I have to kind of, you know, be cool with that, you know, being put in those boxes. So that's all good with me. But as far as writing in particular genres and reading, it's 
a bit hard to say. I do like it when an author can kind of successfully bring all those elements together. Billy Martin, formerly Poppy Z. Bright, really did that well. And I was always very impressed with his writing uh, growing up. I think there's some really fantastic stuff out there. And I do like reading a lot of nonfiction stuff. Right now I'm reading a biography of Cleopatra. I'm also rereading The Satanic Witch by Anton LaVey. Oh, my God. (laughs) I credit, I swear to God, I credit finding my ideal partner, my fiancé, to the synthesizer clock. Wow. I'm a 10, she's a 4. Now, listeners at home, I'm not talking about looks. (laughs) She's a 10 and I'm a 4. But on the synthesizer clock, I am a 10 and she is a (laughs) 4. Yeah, so I think that he had a lot of interesting insight into that kind of stuff. You know, I know he's kind of a controversial character, but I think that... The clock scale, it's so relevant. And when I say reread, I think I've read it five times. Mm -hmm. But now I'm rereading it to kind of get an idea and flesh out a little bit of a a character. But you know what? I'll read anything. I'll read the back of a shampoo bottle Mm -hmm. just to see what's on there. I like reading Jackie Collins romance, like salacious romance. I like, you know, reading my friend Norm because I just like his voice and that comes across in his writing Clive Barker for his batshit crazy imagination. V.C. Andrews. I love, you know, more classic stuff like Daphne du Maurier. I'll read anything. If it seems interesting and it's got great characters, I'll definitely pick it up. But like I said, I do like to combine all of those elements of femdom, of erotica, erotic horror, Southern Gothic, I love it when I can bring all of those elements together successfully in a piece of writing. Well, what is the life of Claire Castleberry like outside of writing? (laughs) Well, I do just like a tiny bit of pro-femdom stuff. Like I have two subs and it's really just, you know, I think people think, you're out there in leather prancing around and beating the crap out of people, but that's not always (laughs) what it's really about. I mostly just get on a chat surface and tell the subs to dress up or do something amusing. Mm -hmm. I also write a lot of occult and esoteric nonfiction stuff. I'm trying to make a little bit of side income from that. I paint. I Can you, I'm sorry, you piqued my interest. Can you expound on that, the uh, nonfiction Um, occult? So right now I have a gig that hopefully comes into fruition. It's a lot of astrology, a lot of ritualistic, suggestive stuff. I also write a lot on UFO theory, a lot of alien-related theory, anything kind of outside the realm of normal. Although I guess, you know, UAPs are starting to become a little bit more mainstream. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, is this like you, a blog or something or? What? Yeah. So it's, it's through basically like a consulting company. I think that it's mostly ghost writing. They pay for it. So I don't really care if my name is on it or, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> or whatnot, but I try to do the best research that I possibly can and get factual information, you know, librarian brain, mm-hmm. uh, try to do the best that I can with that. And I also paint. I listen to a lot of music and I occasionally chat with other creatives in my spare time. I garden a lot. I spend as much time as possible outside with my bees and my plants. 
I also spend a little bit of time in New Orleans with my family, hanging out with people I love. Mm-hmm. I'm also pretty decent at pool. Oh. My mom owned a bar that was actually situated in front of our house. So she kind of taught me a, a thing or two about that. My partner is way better <laughs> than I am at pool. And he actually learned from his church group growing up. So it's kind of like a running joke. You know, I have like this, the devil influences of the bar and he has <laughs> <laughs> Jesus influences from the, the church group. So we, we like to play together, but you know, he always scratches on the eight balls. So. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Well, I saw a picture of you basically with some bees in a beekeeper's outfit. And I wondered, are you just doing like some sort of experience or is that actually something you do? So you do you you source your own honey, basically? Yeah. So I just started actually this year in May. I got a hive and got it all set up. They're thriving. Mm -hmm. They did so well that they expanded in such a degree that most of them swarmed, which means that they took off with the queen that they had and they're out and about in the woods around here doing their own thing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I kind of like boohooed about it for a little while, but it's actually a good sign that the hive is doing well and it's very healthy. Okay. So they produced a new queen her name is Morticia. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they're doing well again. And typically what you want to try to do is not source the honey the first year. Mm. I'm still learning. I'm still kind of researching as much as possible. But the theory is that if you do not source the honey, they will successfully get through the winter, which is what you want to do. And by the time they come out of the winter season in the spring, they'll be much stronger. But it would be nice to do like a little side business off of it and at the very least get a little bit of honey for my own personal use. And if it does super well, who knows? Maybe I'll be shipping you a jar of honey one of these days. What's what's the brand going to be? Cleo and Vix, which is the name of my two cats. Cleo and Vix. All right. Yep. Okay. Well, I'm going to hold you to that. I want some honey. All right. So uh, how was Halloween? Well, it was a little bit uneventful. I live out in the country and Mm. really, you know, don't get out too much, actually. I put out my life-size skeleton. His name is Steve. I put him out in a beach chair at the end of the driveway and put a little bowl of candy in his lap. Um, I watched Witchboard. Um, that you're putting the power in the kids' hands, like to, to not take the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. You know what? The kids are so well behaved around here. We went out to go retrieve Steve from his beach chair and there was candy left over. Wow. So, you know, had we done that in New Orleans, they would have yeah. stolen Steve, the beach chair, the whole <laughs> bowl of candy. <laughs> so it's a really different world up here in, in New yeah. Hampshire where we've moved recently, but. We watched movies and an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. It was nice. Very, very chill. It's beautiful in New Hampshire, isn't it? I mean, I've never been. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's wonderful. I mean, you can step outside at 10 o'clock at night and you can see the Milky Way Hmm. right outside the front door. And there's tons of hiking, which is one of my true passions. So it's fantastic. Keeps me nice and balanced. Love it. Well, are you a fan of film? Yeah. Yeah, I am. I like 
a lot of weird kind of experimental stuff. Mm, I love same. David Lynch. Love David Lynch. Love Kenneth. Say Casper, no way. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Kenneth Anger. Um, he's he's a huge influence. Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. Yeah, yeah. Mm. All of his stuff is really fantastic. So really into that kind of stuff. I don't watch a whole whole lot of traditional TV shows, and it's not because like I don't like it. It's just because I feel like I just don't get around to it or something. I don't know. I don't know what my problem is. <laughs> like people will be talking about Stranger Things. Oh, it's so fantastic. I'm like, okay, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And then, you know, it's like a year and a half, two years later, and I finally watch it. I don't know what puts me off about series. I never want to watch series. Yeah. It just seems know. like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think so too. Definitely. You mentioned that you do like Gasper in a way. Do you like the French extremist movement as a whole? Like, um... Yeah, I really do. There was a, actually, what is the name of it? Raw. Oh, Julia DeCornell. Yes. Yeah, she's a badass. Have you seen T-Tain? No, I haven't. Somebody else actually told me I needed to watch that. So I'll have to get on the ball about that. Yeah, I really liked Raw. What was another one? Martyrs, I think. Oh, God, yes. There's another Bananas one that I thought was really, really interesting. That's my uh, fiancé and I's favorite movie. Yeah, that one's intense. Mm. Really, really liked that one, though. Yeah. Yeah, the, the French really, they're masters at blending horror and sexuality in kind of a, a thought-provoking and mind-bending and truly unforgettable way. <laughs> So have you seen Irreversible all the way through? Yeah. Including the nine minute rape scene? Yep. Okay. Me and my fiance watched it, but I was like, this is a pretty brutal rape that's about to happen. She's like, oh, I yeah. think I'll. so I warned her about it and she didn't watch it. So a woman that has watched it, did it make you physically ill? It made me physically ill. So I wonder what your perspective would be. It disturbed me and i watched it years and years ago and i think i remember every single thing from that movie you know and this is a little bit of a, a controversy within the horror community as a whole like how much is too much mm. but i think you know as someone who's experienced crazy things in my own life that were traumatizing horror to me can be healing you know, it's hard to explain. It's almost like it's comforting in a way to know that you're not alone. It's comforting to see characters take revenge or come out in a way that is positive and they're future oriented. They don't forget what happens to them. They hold it in their mind and it shapes who they are. And I think that they become stronger in the end. And it can be really healing. I think horror can be really good for your mental health. <laughs> yeah. And it seemed to level that really rough scene out because the way the story progresses is it ends at the beginning. Yeah. So it ends with her in the middle of that park with kids playing in a sprinkler. Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of yeah. a beautiful. It's such a, I don't know. I really like the way he constructed that movie. Yeah. Me too. Very unforgettable. Mm-hmm. Well, what is something about you that the average person would never suspect or assume? I think a lot of people assume <laughs> that I'm kind of like a meanie 
you know, dominatrix type or something. Mm. That's okay. I've never been, you know, put off by people calling me intimidating. I think that that can actually be good, but I can kind of be like a pineapple (laughs) in a lot of ways, like spiky, intimidating exterior, but sweet interior. Oh, okay. Yeah. I do like to put up a front though. I think that that can be kind of fun. Yeah. Um, But the people who are able to break through that barrier, they've always been worth it to me to associate with and always become really good friends. So (laughs) spikes and chains and, and whips and mean femdom stuff, you know, there's another layer. Yeah. All right. Well, Claire, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful. As we uh, bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Uh, Sure. So I have a couple of short stories coming out. One is a story called Primal, and it's about a woman who uses voodoo to shapeshift into an alligator who devours her lovers. Nice. So that'll be out in the Erotica for Men and the Women Who Love Them anthology edited by Rose Carraway. Hopefully this month. I also have another one called Succulent Hearts that'll be out in the upcoming February edition of the Femdom Coven anthology. That is about a witch who feeds her pet wolf men's hearts. <laughs> <laughs> Only evil men, though. She's, yeah. you know, discerning. <laughs> um, the sequel to Azalea House, Forbidden Gardens, is out with the first beta reader. Nice. And I'm getting some good feedback about that, so I'm excited about that. My beta readers are toughies, uh-huh. and hopefully Winding Road Stories will pick it up. All right. Well, we will be waiting with bated breath for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listeners at home, all links will be in the description. And Claire, thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always... Thank you for listening. See you next time.
So if it's just my heart to break 